Have you ever noticed that being a Christian is easier at times and harder than others, at others? So we take Sunday morning, for example. It's typically much easier to follow Jesus on Sundays at church because we're surrounded by others who are also seeking to follow Jesus. Sunday is different than than other days, largely because we're just with like-minded people. On Sundays, it's easier to sing uh, uh, psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs as our individual voices unite in, in worship of God. Some find it easier to pray on Sundays, whether by themselves or with others before or after the service. Some find it easier to learn their Bible on Sundays Maybe because there's a Bible class before service or because we devote a large portion of the service to a specific Bible passage or maybe simply because um, we try to arrange the service and all components of the service around the great Bible, great truths of the Bible. Usually it's just much easier to follow Jesus at church than at any other times during the week. But as relatively easy as singing or praying or Bible learning may be, there is one part of the Sunday church service that's a bit harder than others. For us here at East Parkway, it's that part that typically falls between the initial singing and the sermon, sometimes with a few announcements sprinkled in, you know, there are some parts of the service that we tend to view as being on the receiving end. But this one part intends us to be givers and not receivers only. And I'm referring, of course, to the giving of our tithes and offerings. Which, as you know, is a central component of our worship to our worship of God. There's just something about giving our money away that's hard. It's much harder to follow Jesus in this area than in others. Bottom line, I think we all could use some encouragement on how to trust less in our material means and trust more in God himself. We all can use this encouragement. it's not this this aspect of giving is not any easier for pastors i assure you we all could use encouragement on how to trust less in our material means and more in god himself now let me try to set this up a little bit As you may or may not remember, 
You probably don't, but I'm sure some do. Last year, as part of our emphasis on intentionality, after receiving counsel from many other pastors and from many of you seated in this room, I agreed to preach on giving at least once per year. So here we are. <laughs> so I am fulfilling I am my word, my promise to you. Here we go. We step away from our study through John's gospel to consider a passage from Philippians that I think offers excellent insight when it comes to giving, contentment, and trusting in God. I need you to know, and maybe especially those who are visiting this morning, I need you to know that this is not an appeal for money. It is not. Nor is this a panicked response to some financial crisis. We are not in crisis. As a matter of fact, as I'll share in a bit, there is so much to be thankful for and encouraged by. But that's the point. This is meant, for, this is meant to encourage your faith and mine our faith in God while serving as a reminder that if we're honest, for some, nowhere is faith tested most than in the area of money and financial giving. Perhaps some of you here today have never practiced financial giving. Maybe you've tried and you've given up. Maybe you give, but only occasionally and only when it's convenient or comfortable. I, I get it. Whatever the case, whatever your age, whatever your season of life, I'm talking to young folks, young people, middle-aged people, older people, whatever your age and season of, of life I want to encourage your faith in God from God's word on this important subject. And I want to assure you that God's not after your money. He wants your heart. So I'm going to speak from Philippians 4, 10 through 20 in a sermon I've titled Joy, Generosity, and Riches in Christ. Let's read it together. Philippians 4, 10 through 20. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. What a statement. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you you Philippians, it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you now for this time we share in your word. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice and faith to take you at your word and then the courage to obey. Come and bless your people, we pray. Amen. So as I reflected on this passage, I, I found this thought coming to mind, kind of my guiding thought True contentment lies not in our ability to provide for ourselves, but in God, our provider, who richly supplies our every need. I want to say that again. True contentment lies not in our ability to provide for ourselves, but in God, our provider, who richly supplies our every need. I want to take it in three parts. First, the first joy in the Lord. That's verses 10 through 13. Giving to the Lord. That's verses 14 through 18. And finally, the rich supply of the Lord. That's verses 19 and 20. So joy in the Lord, giving to the Lord, and the rich supply of the Lord. The theme of joy is central to the letter of Philippians. Fourteen times we find the words joy or rejoice in this letter. Four times in chapter 1. Five in chapter 2, once in chapter 3, and another four occurrences here in chapter 4. We find the Apostle Paul's heart bursting with joy throughout, and it comes to its most exuberant expression here in verse 10 of chapter 4. For not only did Paul rejoice and rejoice often, he rejoiced Greatly. By the way, little aside, this is the only place in the New Testament where this specific word greatly is used. Paul wants us to know that not only did he rejoice, he rejoiced greatly. Now, why does Paul rejoice with such enthusiasm? I think because of the Philippians' renewed concern 
because of his own growing contentment and because of his absolute trust in the Lord. His joy lies ultimately in God. Paul is filled with joy because the church in Philippi expressed renewed concern for him and gave to him financially. Now, they had given before, of course, but apparently there came a noticeable lull in their giving. And it's not that they were any less concerned for Paul. They weren't. It's simply that they had no opportunity for whatever reason. Now, however, they had opportunity and they were quick to meet it. So Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And this word revived speaks of new life, of of coming to life again. It actually means to blossom again, like a once dormant plant that has now come into full bloom. Paul is overjoyed by the Philippians' concern that had blossomed again into full and generous expression. And along with their concern was his growing contentment. Notice. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says in verse 11, again in verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul had learned how to be content. Have you? Have I? This was the question I was wrestling with today. Have I? Where am I on this spectrum of learning when it comes to being content? To be content is to be at peace, satisfied, Gratified, fulfilled, unworried, untroubled, genuinely happy and at ease. Contentment doesn't come naturally or easily to us. We aren't born with it. It is, as Paul notes here, a learned discipline. So what must we learn to grow in this area? Well, I think first we see that we must learn to live within our means, regardless of how much or how little. The opposite of contentment is want. Our ever-present desire for more, which dupes us into thinking that we actually need more than we already have. So I walk through Costco. 
and I see all the latest gadgets and gizmos. And suddenly I realize just how much stuff there is that I never knew I needed. <laughs> we live in a culture that feeds this insatiable hunger for more, for bigger, for better, for newer, for different. And this isn't unique to us, of course, or to our culture. This is a human condition. Do you remember when God rescued his people from Egypt, how he undeniably showed himself capable of protecting them and providing for them always? Remember how they were so quick to praise God for his mighty deliverance and yet so quick to blame God and complain to God when hunger set in. And then you remember when, how amazed they were when God provided manna from heaven. They just walked out the door and there was their provision every day. But then they begin to fault him. Because they want something new. They want something different. And then they, they even begin to imagine themselves back in Egypt, eating from an Egyptian buffet, where they're suggesting that it would be better to go back into captivity than to live free with God and under his loving and constant care. And what was the real issue there? What was really going on in their hearts? Was it not a spirit of discontent? Though miraculously delivered and, and meticulously cared for, their momentary wants got the best of them and they began to confuse their greeds with their needs. Not Paul. See how Paul was content with what he had, regardless of how much or little, whether in plenty or hunger, in abundance or need, and he was content with where he was, where he was in life. Twice in this uh, passage, he, he talks about learning contentment in whatever situation and in any and every circumstance. Now, I want to remind you that Paul is writing to Philippi from a prison in Rome. And he's imprisoned, not because he's committed any crime against humanity, but because he's simply sharing the gospel, the good news of God's redeeming love through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yet Paul's not complaining about his imprisonment. He's not bemoaning the injustice of it all. He's not trying to manipulate his circumstances for selfish gain. Instead, he is completely content. And he's rejoicing in God. I 
I think we need to hear this. Contentment is lost in our pursuit of control. It's about being content in whatever your circumstance rather than trying to control your circumstance. Just this morning, I kid you not, I found myself discontented because I was trying to control things beyond my control. So I knew that many of our people would be gone today for many reasons. And it was bumming me out. It discouraged me. And I was afraid that it would discourage you. And so I began talking to my wife, I began to try to think about things I could do or say to try to manipulate the situation to be less discouraging. Then, it, then the irony hit me. I'm preparing to speak on contentment. And I was anything but content. Huh. Don't you love it when God does that? Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with godly concern or godly ambition. Contentment is not complacency. But in life, we must let go we must let go of certain expectations if those expectations are controlling our lives in an unhealthy manner. And frankly, the secret that Paul learned here, the secret is surrender. The secret to contentment is surrender to Christ. Paul's contentment grew as he grew less dependent on his circumstances and more dependent on the Lord. That's the significance of verse 13 when he declares, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If I have plenty, I can do through Christ. If I have hardly nothing, I can do through Christ. If I'm in happy circumstances, I can do through Christ. If I'm in difficult circumstances, I can do through Christ. Through Christ. But the emphasis is not on Paul's doing, but on Christ's. The word there, through, in the ESV is actually the word in, meaning I can do all things in him who strengthens me. In other words, Jesus is not simply the means of strength. He is the actual source of strength. Paul's joy... Lied not in his material means or his present circumstance, but in the Lord to whom he looked for strength. And people, is that not a great lesson for us? 
The next section moves us from Paul's joy in the Lord to the Philippians' gift to the Lord. And I want you to notice two things here. I want you to see how the Philippians partnered both in giving and receiving and how they ultimately gave, not to Paul, ultimately, but to the Lord. Uh, Verses 14 and 16 emphasize their partnership in the gospel. Though his joy was in God, Paul was so appreciative of the Philippian congregation. So appreciative. You cannot read through this letter without getting the strong sense that Paul shared a very special bond with this church. It was not a perfect church. No church is. This side, not this side of heaven. They faced opposition from enemies without, and they experienced rivalry and disunity from within. So you read the letter. By the time of this letter, one of their key leaders, Epaphroditus, had nearly died twice. Some in the church were subtly teaching confidence in the flesh rather than confidence in Christ. They were a relatively poor church. They weren't flush with cash or material means. They had issues. But despite their issues, they saw themselves as partners in the gospel, partakers of the gospel, and participants in its spread. And Paul recognized and commended them for it. How they shared in his trouble, verse 14. How they partnered with him in ministry, verse 15. And supported him financially on more than one occasion, verse 16. They had a history of helping. What a legacy. Of giving out of their own poverty for the benefit of others. Now obviously they loved Paul and he loved them. And together they loved fellowshipping in the work of the gospel. In fact, this word partnership in verse 15, you'll recognize this, is the word koinoneo which is the essence of the Christian life, fellowship with God and with God's people. East Parkway, in this same vein, I just want to take a brief moment to commend you and thank God for you and for our fellowship in the gospel, for our partnership in giving and receiving. Now this church is made up of tremendous givers. By the way, I've told this before, but for those who may not know, I have no idea who gives what. We do that intentionally for good reason, but I know this church is made up of tremendous givers. You give in so many wonderful ways, and you too have a history of helping when it comes to financial matters. You are a very generous congregation, and your generosity is making a difference. I want you to know that recently I met with Joe Miller. Joe couldn't be here today. I don't don't think he's here today. He's downstairs. We wanted to review our financials. Joe is giving 
just outstanding oversight to this important ministry. And we met because we're nearing the midpoint of the year. It's that time of the year when we make any necessary course corrections for the second half budget. And I don't want to go into all the details. Trust me, you don't want me to go into all the details. But I want you to know that from a bird's eye view, Joe and I are very encouraged. Through the first four months of this year, giving is up 25% over where it was last year at the same period. While the deficit in our uh, general fund is down 64%. That's good news. You know how, how we've endured some lean times over the years, but the current financial trend and trajectory is positive and it suggests healthier days ahead. There's still work to be done, obviously, but God has been very faithful and you've been very generous. But more than that, more than that, whether in hunger or plenty, the gospel continues to go forth from among us. You are ministers of the gospel, both inside the church walls and in your own respective spheres of influence. And your ministry, your gospel ministry is evident in all aspects of church life. I want to thank you. Our staff continues to, to, to grow, develop in efficiency and effect. Melinda, man's the, the office so incredibly well, handles our administrative needs so well. She is such a support administratively to so many. Jeff and, and the music team serve us so faithfully each and every week. They give so much each and every week. And even while Jeff and Andre and I continue to, to search for a part-time music minister, as you know, Andre, Andre just continues to excel in the many roles he fills at the church. And we are so excited about the addition of Lauren coming on to staff. About, I'm excited for Lauren. I'm excited about this stage in her life. And I'm excited about the, the ways God has gifted Lauren and how those gifts will be evidenced here among us. This year we've added more life groups to our weekly ministry, including more that meet through the summer. Wildwood is happening next month, as Andre said. Tahoe is happening next month. The baptism at the bay is happening next month. This summer we're planning something new. As Chris Androkaitis uh, coordinates a NERF outreach to the community. I love that, he's, that, that it's, he's thinking outside the box. And then I just want to tease you with this. I'm super excited about this. Coming this fall, we're launching a, 
an eldership training ministry whereby we're identifying some of our younger up-and-coming men in the church and we're proactively equipping and training them for, for church leadership. You may remember a few years ago when I preached my I Have a Dream sermon. This was one of my dreams where we would establish a ministry where we could begin discipling up-and-coming pastors and leaders in the church. I had no idea it was going to happen this year, but it's happening this fall. Talked to a few of these young men already. They're super excited, and there are a few that I... I still want to talk with. The, pot, the response thus far has just been outstanding. And I could go on to talk about mops and singing out and hospitality and congregational care. I just want you to see how your generosity is making a difference in obvious and tangible ways. Like Paul, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you have revived your concern. Now, of course, you have always been concerned, but now there is new opportunity to express your support. So East Parkway, let us not grow weary in doing good, knowing that your labors in the Lord are never in vain. Can I get a witness? And that's the key. That's the key. The key is seeing our labors, and in this case, in this context, our giving as being unto the Lord, first and foremost, trusting the Lord to bring forth fruit. Now, certainly there will be fruit in in other people's lives as we sow gospel seeds among them. But I want you to see how Paul here speaks of the fruit born in your own life as you give to gospel ministry. Paul wasn't twisting their arm to give. He appreciated their gifts, but he wasn't thinking of their gifts. Instead, saying in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, I'm seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul was seeking the profit that accrued to their account, wanting them to know that that their gift was actually leading to their gain. And the idea is this, that, that generosity is recognized by God and rewarded. These verses teach, and so do many others, that the giver also gains when he or she gives. We gain as givers because we're giving to God. We gain as givers because we're trusting God. We gain as givers because we're growing more content. We gain as givers because we're, we're experiencing joy in the Lord. We gain as givers because we're worshiping God, and worship is so good for you. The worship of God is so good for our souls. And so Paul can say in verse 18 that their gifts, though given to him, though their gifts were given to him, he can say in verse 18 that they were actually a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. God delights. 
when his people are dedicated to himself. And the point of this reference to the fragrant offering is that when we take note of needs and give to meet them in dedication to God, it is for God a pleasing aroma. So we've considered Paul's joy in the Lord and the Philippians' gift to the Lord. Lastly, consider the rich supply of the Lord as the section closes with words of assurance and praise. In verse 19, Paul assures the Philippian believers, and by extension he assures us that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And in short, the message is this. God can be trusted. When we cultivate a generous spirit, a giving spirit, we need not worry about our material needs because God promises to meet each one. How? I don't know. When? I don't know. But he promises to meet each one. He is the great giver. He initiates giving. He empowers giving. He multiplies our gifts. He supplies gifts to be both given and received. And that God supplies generously for our every need is demonstrated best in the gift of Jesus Christ. You see, our greatest need is not something physical, though God meets physical needs. Our greatest need is spiritual. Our need for forgiveness and reconciliation. Our greatest need is knowing that our spiritual debt, the spiritual debt that our sins have accrued before God, has been paid in full. It was paid in full indeed by Jesus Christ Himself, the eternal Son of God, when, when He who knew no sin chose to bear our sins in our place on the cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. You see, the person who has Christ has it all. Because all the, the, the blessings and benefits of God come to us through Christ, whether physical or spiritual, whether in this life or in the life to come. 
Is that good news? And so I said at the start, and I now repeat in conclusion, contentment, contentment, contentment lies not in your ability to provide for yourself, but in God, your provider, who richly supplies your every need in Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, will you trust God? Those who may be here this morning who haven't yet entrusted your life to God, I urge you to take hold of this indescribable gift of Jesus Christ and life in Christ by confessing your need for Christ and calling upon Christ to be your Savior and then by following Jesus as your Lord. It begins there. And then for those of us who've already, who already know Jesus in this way, who've already received Him in this way, presumably most of us in this room, let us, can we say this, let us with great contentment and joy in the Lord continue giving to God's great work of the gospel in our church, in our surrounding communities, and even throughout different places of our world. For as it says in verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God, we thank you for speaking to us today. And we do confess that this area of giving, and specifically financial giving, is sometimes very, very hard for us. And I just thank you for the way in which you are growing us in, in this important aspect of our worship. That we might surrender even more and more of our hearts, more and more of our lives to you. With full faith and joy and confidence and contentment in Christ. Thank you that you're working these truths in each, in and through each of our lives. We bless you for this. And we pray through Christ. Amen.